you, Stephanie, and musicians. Take your Bible tonight, your copy of God's Word, and go to Psalm 140. Psalm 140. In this passage, really, uh, the next four Psalms, perhaps, are written by David. And in this passage, he talks about evil, evil men. Now, let's put that statement in a little bit of perspective. <clears throat> If you were here this morning, you understand we're all lost, and so there's nobody who's righteous. But among, among humanity, there are those who choose to be more evil. There are those who choose to do more wrong, and they, uh, they have some characteristics about them, and David talks about it here. And just to kind of give some illustrations before we look at this passage, there are evil men and women in the world who actually uh, seem to enjoy doing bad things. They seem to enjoy violence, which is usually endemic of their nature. They are known to be cruel, um, domineering over others, taking what they want. Uh, most often, folks that are, are evil to that degree purposely choose to be more evil are blasphemers. They reject God and his law, obviously. Uh, and so they are irreligious and uh, self-centered and all about themselves. To those folks that are like that, and David will describe them in this passage, they are a law unto themselves. They have no law. They have no law, no respect toward God. And uh, quite honestly, they can be a plague on society for those who live that way. I'm going to give you three historical figures that fit, that are real people that you can associate with historically. Maybe some of you can if you don't like history, but I'll help you here. Uh, there, are, there are three historical figures who personify the kind of people that David is describing here, and then we'll get to what he's actually talking about. And the first one we could note historically in chronological order would be an emperor in the time of Jesus. Everybody remember a guy named Nero? Nero was, um, when you study history about him, he's about half a bubble off plum. He, wa he wasn't just, you know, real, you know, there's something wrong with him. He and it could be, you know, it could have just been sin, but he wasn't right, okay? He killed his entire family. I mean, murdered him because he's the emperor, and he, he ruled not for, uh, you know, a long time, AD 37 to 68, but the church was going and Christianity was flourishing and, and, and Satan, I believe, orchestrated it to have this crazy man, you know, in charge of Rome at part of that. And uh, he killed all of his family. Uh, he was known historically that when, when a city or a people resisted, you know, Rome had a policy when they expanded the empire. The army of Rome would march up to a city and say, you have two choices. You can surrender and we'll make you part of the Roman Empire, and you can use our roads, and we'll enjoy the safety of Rome, but you got to pay taxes, and we're in charge. Or you can resist us, and we'll just kill everybody. Well, most cities went, okay, we'll change our flag. We're Roman now, and uh, we're all good. But Nero was known for sending his army to raise cities. He would just kill everybody. The guy was uh, not very nice. Um, in AD 64, a little before that, he had gone to the Senate, and wanted to rebuild part of Rome. He didn't like it. He, and, and, let's tear this down and rebuild it. And the Senate went, no, 
and we don't have the money, no. So funny thing happened not long after that, a fire broke out in the very area where he wanted to tear down and rebuild. Now there's no proof historically, nobody can say that he had anything to do with starting the fire, but he was playing the fiddle and singing while the Rome was on fire. So he was, you know, I suspect he had something to do with it, whether he did or not, uh, but he didn't set a very good precedent singing the song of rejoicing while half of Rome was burning and it took days to put it out and he got what he wanted anyway. Well, he blamed that, <clears throat> that event. The people in Rome were really upset. The Senate was upset. And so he blamed Christians for that. And Christians took the brunt of blame for all the bad stuff that happened in Rome. And, and he was known for burning, stabbing, boiling, crucifying, impaling, and otherwise beheading Christians at will. And it was the Apostle Paul who was in prison in Rome, and he had Paul beheaded. Uh, and he, he was just not a nice guy. He would fit the parameters, okay, of, of a person who had chosen to be evil, who had chosen to do bad things. Another one, um, in, the, in the early 1200s AD um, in Mongolia, there was a guy named Genghis Khan. Anybody ever study him in history? Fascinating, fascinating guy. He ruled for 21 years and built the largest empire the world has ever known to date. Bigger than he he built a massive empire, and but the problem was he did it with incredible uh, evil, with wickedness. His army was uh, known to be bloodthirsty, and uh, conquered peoples and destroyed. Um, he was cruel. He was cruel to his enemies. He was cruel to his friends that they made him mad. He was a unilateral dictator and was evil at that. History says that he was singularly responsible for the death of up to 60 million people. Let that sink in for just a minute. You know what the world population was in the early 1200s? 360 million. So the guy single-handedly killed about 20% of the human population on the planet all by himself, you know, with his army and conquering... Uh, so another example of people who aren't just satisfied with being lost, aren't just satisfied with being uh, sinners, they're taking it to a whole other degree. Last one I'll, I'll give you that you know is more contemporary is uh, Hitler, Adolf Hitler. 1933, 1945, he was the uh, leader of Germany, the Fuhrer of the Nazi party. He led in the execution murder of six million Jews and two million other people that he just deemed weren't worthy to be on the planet. So he killed eight million people on purpose, like just killing them, gassing them, burning them, and, and pouring them in a pit. But history says that because of his obviously spreading out over Europe and taking over other countries, that he was responsible for the deaths of over 50 million people in World War II just fighting him and his armies. You take just those three guys in history, and we could, I like history, we could have did this for a long time. Just those three examples throughout history, Nero in the first century, and then 1200s, you got Genghis Khan on the other side of the planet, and then you get this guy in Europe, Hitler, in the, in the early 30s. <clears throat> I believe they are examples of what we will see in this passage where a man or a woman opens themselves to throw off all the restraints of humanity and the likeness of God, to throw off the law of God, and Satan takes advantage of that. And Satan uses them to do great damage and great 
wickedness. And I could, I could say the same thing. I could, I could have gone through the pages of newspapers over the last 40 or 50 years and, and mass murderers and, and people who do crazy things walk into movie theaters and shoot people and, and, and just craziness. Why does it, you know, what moves a person to do that? It's just evilness. It's just, it's just wickedness. It's a separation from God. And so David, in this passage, in, in chapter 140, <clears throat> talks about the men who were pursuing him in the same light, meaning these men are evil. They plot evil and they want to kill me. And he's asking God to help him. He's asking God to deliver him from evil men who would take his life. So look at verse 1 of Psalm 140. <clears throat> and notice how he begins this chapter. He says, Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men, Preserve me from violent men. Now, the first thing I note in that verse as I was studying it this week is evil men and violent men often go together. They're, all, they're often the one and the same person, meaning people who are, who are evil on purpose, people who choose to defy God and choose to do wicked things, often couple it with violence to get what they want. In other words, most of the time it's violence that makes, helps them achieve what it is they want in life. And as I said earlier, men and women, and women, I could have gone through history and found some women who were who pretty bad. Men and women who choose to do these kinds of things become a plague on society, and in the cases of the three men we talked about, on the world. I mean, look at, look at the disruption that Hitler caused in the whole world by being a narcissist and being crazy and being evil and wicked and thinking he had a better plan uh, he upset the whole world, and families all over the world lost husbands and sons and daughters, and, and people died because of him, because of his sinfulness. Now, one thing to note and with regard to David, evil and wicked men and women often will target people who resist them. In other words, people who, who either verbally or in their lifestyle point out their evilness. What group of people in the world do you think do that best? That's not a test. It's just pretty obvious. Christians, okay? So if you have, if you have this evil, wicked person in the world who's off the rails and thrown, thrown off all restraints and said, man, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to kill and rape and pillage and destroy as long as I get what I want. And then you have Christians who, who, who understand that there's a God and that his law rules, and we stand up and go, excuse me, Mr. Evil Man or Mr. Evil Woman, um, you ain't supposed to be doing that because God said don't do that. Where do you think their violence and their wrath is going to land? Right on those people who said you're not supposed to be doing that, okay? Because by the very definition of their, of their unrestrained wickedness, they don't want anybody telling them different. Jesus said in the New Testament that we are salt and light in the world. Well, salt's a preservative, but you know what happens when it gets in an open wound, don't you? Ouch, man, it hurts. It stings, it burns. So what I'm saying is that, like in David's case, David, David's life and David's relationship with God and David's walk with God, he's a man after God's own heart, and, and David's willingness to serve God, wherever he called, David's bravery in battle to go out when God said, yeah, go out to battle, and David believed God, that was an affront that was an affront to Saul and Doag and all those other guys who were wicked and, and wanted to kill him. It, was, it stung them. Because when they looked at David, they saw what they ought to be. 
When they looked at David, they, they, they saw the reflection and saw their own sinfulness and they didn't want to see it. Oh, dear ones, listen. As we, as our nation becomes more pagan, paganized, it already is. If you go out of this building and you walk with Christ and you live right, you don't even have to open your mouth and evil and wicked people are not going to like you. Simply because your lifestyle is an affront to them. It's a conviction to them. And they're not going to like it. And they're going to accuse you of all kinds of things. And they're going to condemn you for it. Just as David's life reminded them uh, of their sinfulness. You say, well, how bad was Saul? And I believe this is the case that David's writing about here. Well, you'll remember in, in, in uh, 1 Samuel that David had, was running from Saul hang around chapter 22, and he goes over to Nob, to the priest, and he eats the showbread there and gets the sword of Goliath, and he runs away. Well, Doag, the Edomite, was there, and he went back and told Saul that these priests had helped David. Well, David, by this time, has been marked by Saul as a fugitive, as a, as a, a usurper, as a traitor to the nation, and he has a death sentence hanging on his head. So David and his 400 men are running for their lives. Doag goes and tells Saul, and Saul comes to Nob, to the priests that are there, and, and has them all executed and kills them all. That's the kind of people David was dealing with. That's the kind of people that, that were pursuing him. And so David prays here and he says, God, I'm just a shepherd. I'm just a, a guy who was watching sheep about six months ago or a year ago. I'm, you know, I'm out there watching my daddy's sheep and, and Samuel shows up at the house and says, I'm going to be the next king. I went back and watched the sheep. You know, God, I didn't go after this, and I didn't try to do it. You did this. You picked me, and now these guys want to kill me. So I would say from 2,000 years later, 2,500, David had a pretty good case. Lord, you did this. I didn't, I didn't go trying to take Saul's job, and he's trying to kill me, so I need some help here, some deliverance from these wicked men. Then in verse 2, he talks about their plans and their actions. Look at verse 2. He said, who plan evil things in their hearts, they continually gather together for war. Again, there's the combination of, of, this, of this undoneness in their heart, this wickedness that they sit around thinking up evil things to do, and then the action of it is always violence and war. There are two ways that, that I would say, I'm, I would really struggle with how to frame this, but, but I think you'll understand it. There are two ways that people go into sin. You say, well, sin, sin, I know, but follow me, okay? There are people who sin who didn't mean to sin. Doesn't mean they didn't do it. You and I, when we sin, it isn't like we're walking around going, let me see what I can get into next. If that is how you're thinking, you come see me because that's messed up, okay? You may not even be saved. But we don't typically walk around as Christians going, you know, planning and going, you know, what kind of sin can I get into next? No, it's, it's a, we're going through life, and, and an, an unplanned thing happens and we react wrongly or, or, we, or we have a wrong thought or, or some lust comes into our heart. You know, it's, it sneaks up on us. Let's put it that way, all right? We, we're like, we're going along and boom, all of a sudden there's this temptation there and we do something wrong. And right away, if you're a Christian, you get convicted about it. And so you confess to God right away. And you say, God, I, I'm sorry for saying that. I'm sorry for thinking that. I'm sorry for whatever it was that we did. And God, of course, forgives right away, and it's, and it's forgiven, and you move on. That's, that's one way lost people live in life. There are unsaved men and women, listen to me, who are good people. There's nothing wrong. Man, they are, they're just lost. 
They just don't know, but they're living a good life. They take care of their family. They're, they're paying their bills. They're faithful at their job. They're good citizens. They help people in need. They're doing all kinds of good stuff, but the problem is we learned this morning, that stuff won't help you get into heaven. So there's people in life who aren't out looking to do evil, but now there's a whole other group. There are people in the world, and I can tell you I knew some of them in the Navy, I don't know if that's endemic of the military or not. It was in my day, probably not now. But, but these guys, they were looking for trouble all the time. You following me? In other words, at work, before they got off in the afternoon, they were thinking about how they could get in trouble after they got off work. In other words, they're planning, they're planning to sin. They're planning to go out and do what they already know is wrong. Okay? Their hearts, they're planning. And that's what David said right here. Lord, they plan evil things in their hearts. And it's even worse when a group of them get together and plan together. They plan what they're going to do, what evil they're going to do, what they're going to do to somebody they don't like, harm, violence, whatever it is. David said, Lord, that's how these guys are against me. They're, they're planning. Now, what's God's view? Now, we know what God's view is of sin God wants to forgive us, and, and, and we're all weak, and we all fall, and we all stumble, and that's why we have God's grace, and we come to him, and we confess, and he forgives. But how does God view people who are perpetually planning to do bad all the time? Their heart's just given over to evil. Well, let me remind you, in Proverbs 6, listen to this, verse 16 to 19, you know this list, seven things that God hates. Listen to this. We usually use this verse to talk about pride, but listen to this. These six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. Now here it is. Here's the list. A proud look. God hates those who are proud because what they're doing is they're lifting themselves up when they should be humbling themselves. Okay? He, he hates hands that shed innocent blood, murderers, people who kill indiscriminately. Listen to verse 18. A heart that devises what? Wicked plans. God hates that. Now listen. Well, it's not hard. It's not. If God said he hates something, I would suggest we put that on our list of things we particularly pay attention to and don't do. What do you think? I mean, if God says, I hate these seven things right here, okay, note to self, I can do a lot of things in life, but these seven right here are off the list, okay? I'm not, I'm not going to do any of these things because God specifically said, I hate those. I hate that sin. I hate that. Now, God's offended at all sin, but if he takes the time to say, those seven I really don't like, as Christians, particularly, we ought to go, right, that's, we're going to stay away from that. But it's true in the world as well. God hates those who plan to do evil and wickedness. And we see it in society. We see people plan and, and, and connive and work their evil machinations to bring about their own uh, achievements at the expense of other people. And God hates that. By the way, let's read the rest of the list, okay? He, he, in verse 18, he, heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil. So we plan it and then we run to it. God said, I hate that. A false witness that speaks lies, a lying, and one who sows discord among brethren. Well, I can make hay with that in the church, but we'll leave it lay right now. God said he hates that, okay? So, so we shouldn't do that stuff, right? He said he hates that. Now, David said, Lord, their plans and their actions are or um, put in motion by the preparation of their words. Look at verse 3. He said, They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asps or, or snakes is under their lips, selah. The selah, by the way, is a, 
a musical term in the Psalms that means to pause. So what David does, he makes these statements, he says, now pause and think about that. He compares here their speech of the evil ones to a serpent. Now why would he make that connection? Well, if you remember from school, and this will help refresh your memory, when you see a snake, and the only good snake, by the way, is a dead snake, but when you see a snake, um, what, are they, what are they always doing when they're crawling around? What are they doing with their tongue all the time? This is a little, if you're ever on Jeopardy, you're going to win this, okay? A snake moves his tongue in and out of his mouth more than any other creature on the planet, except maybe somebody who talks too much. I don't know. But, he, but he, move, he, he moves his tongue in and out. Now, why do snakes do that? Do you remember from school why they do that? That's how they know what's around them, right? In other words, God made them that way. A dog can smell and has good hearing. But a snake, when they stick their tongue out, it's forked and it's getting, it's getting molecules on it. And, it's, and, it can, and he puts it back in his mouth. And inside the mouth of a snake are these two little pockets that tongue goes into that has sensory cells that are really sensitive. And so when he sticks his tongue out, and gets whatever is on it in the air. It could be moisture, it could be heat, it could be anything. It puts it back in his mouth. It tells him exactly what's out there. Tells him if there's something warm out there, a warm-blooded thing. Tells him if there's moisture around. Tells him everything. In fact, it's so accurate. And in God, even a snake, God makes him like awesome. Then we kill him. There's this thing, you know. <laughs> but God, but God makes a snake like the thing. It can be in the dark and can, with its tongue, figure out where its prey is and strike perfectly without, just by using its tongue. And then when he talks about the poison, what he's talking about is, you know, like when a snake, you know how the, a venomous snake works, their fangs are hollow, and when they bite, they squish the, the contract the muscles in the top of their mouth, and it squirts the poison in, and they let go. And they can do it so fast that it's faster than the human eye can see. In other words, they can strike bite you, put in the poison, and draw back, and you can't, and, and it's faster than you can see. That's how fast they are. Another reason why a dead snake's the only good snake, right? So, so what David's doing here is drawing a really interesting comparison by saying that these wicked men are like these serpents. He says, their words are setting me up. He says, like the serpent sticking his tongue out. Man, they're measuring me, and they're telling these stories on me, and they're, and they're like, you know, Doag goes back to Saul and says, David went to the priest and the priest aided him. The priest didn't have anything. It was all a lie. And it caused a bunch of men to get killed because Doag lied and was leading Saul down the wrong road. And Saul was already upset and wanted to kill David. So he goes and kills him anyway. And so David said, it's like a snake. These guys are, are saying things about me and telling stories about me. And they're building this case against me so that when they get the chance, like a snake, they're going to strike and they're going to kill me. Now think about this for a minute. Is that not the way the world operates today? Let me, let me draw something to your attention that I'm sure you're already aware of. I hardly ever watch TV. I'll turn the news on long enough for it to make me mad and then I turn it off. And I check the weather on my phone. But you know what I've noticed in the media? You see it online when you read things. And you see, if you watch the news, you see it on any shows. For some time now, in this country particularly, the media has been painting Christians as dumb as a box of rocks. They've been painting Christians as out of touch with reality and painting Christians as those who are not really in the know and not smart and not really connected. Now, why do you think they're doing that? 
Why do you think that Satan has moved society to be influenced by a media that always, always paints Christians in a negative light? Every time you see a Christian in a movie, unless it's a Christian movie, the Christian ends up being the one who's hateful and unkind and bigoted. Why is it the Christian's always painted as the guy or gal who's living out of touch with reality? Listen, same exact thing David said right here. Like a serpent, man, they're just setting us up. They're, what they're doing is they're conditioning everybody who watches that source of information, they're conditioning them to think about Christians in a certain way. So that every time Christians are brought up, what is it they think about? Oh, there are a bunch of people who are out of touch, man. What they got to say doesn't matter. And let me tell you what it's going to end up doing. You say, oh, you're just paranoid. No, I'm not paranoid because I really don't care. But I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. At some point when persecution begins, the bulk of society is going to think it's okay to persecute Christians because we're not in touch with reality anyway. And because we're just hurting society instead of helping society. That's where it's going. You say, boy, is that really true? Well, yeah, just hang around a few more years, okay? Just wait till you see. And I told you a couple of weeks ago, the way they're going to do it is through political expediency. They're going to say it's better for everybody in society if you Christians don't do what you do and we don't like you anyway. It's coming. It's coming. There's, in California, and you know, sorry, sweetheart, my daughter lives in California, you, you would know it would start there. Just a few years ago, one of their one of their state senators introduced a bill that would forbid the handing out of literature or anything dealing with a person who's trying to be transgender or homosexual or anything like that. It would forbid anybody who wasn't licensed by the state, anybody who wasn't a licensed physician in that area of expertise to try to change that person's mind. Now, they didn't say Christians in particular in the bill because I went online and read it. But it certainly would forbid you from handing somebody a Bible and saying, would you read that and let God tell you what it is about your life you ought to be in? Because they would tell you you're not a doctor and you can't do that. Now, they didn't say a word about Christians in there, but you know, listen, you know the first group of people that thing had come down on like a ton of bricks as Christians who are out trying to help people come to Jesus. Just wait, it's coming. I read it. I read it for myself. Now, thankfully it didn't pass, but you know how long it is till it'll get passed till you get enough people who think that way in a place of authority, and then they'll change the law. That's all it's going to take. David's saying that right here. He said, Lord, I'm a shepherd boy. I've watched sheep my whole life. I got this sling, and I killed a bear and a lion, you know, watching my daddy's sheep. You called me to do this, and now these guys are setting me up for the kill. I mean, man, they're talking about me, and they're spreading lies, and they're saying I'm trying to overthrow Saul and take the throne. I don't want no such thing. And so he's asking God to intervene. He's asking for God's help. Now, in verse 4, he talks about their, their evil deeds. Look at it with me real quick. He says, Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purpose to make my steps stumble. Saul pursued David for some time, took his army and went after him. And I'll give you one example. In 1 Samuel 24, God answered this prayer, by the way, and here it is. Saul was fighting with the Philistines and, and won and found out that someone came and said, hey, David's in this part of the wilderness and in Gede. And so, so Saul took 3,000 men to hunt down 400. And so 3,000 of his crack troops go hunting for David. And David is hiding in this cave, right? And he, him and his men are all up in there hiding, 400 of them. 
And Saul decides he's got to go to the bathroom. So he goes inside the cave to go to the bathroom. Well, guess who's in there? The guy he's looking for. David and all of his men are, are hiding out in there. And so some of David's men said to him, hey, you know who that is. Well, we'll just jump down out of here and chop him to pieces and problem solved, right? We'll go out there and, and, you know, throw his head out the door or something and go, we're done. You remember what David said? David said, uh-uh. He said, that's God's anointed. God anointed him king. He said, and I'm not going to do the very thing he's accusing me of wanting to do because I don't want to. So we're not going to kill him. He said, what I'm going to do is he snuck down there and cut off a piece of his robe. Now, David must have been some stealthy fella, is all I can say, man. I don't even know how that happened, but I was reading it this week thinking, how do you get a piece of a guy's robe in a cave? He's probably got a, I don't even want to think about it. So he gets a piece of this, he gets a piece of this guy's robe, right? And it's probably his, his royal robe or whatever he wears to show that he's king. And so Saul finishes his business. He goes out the cave and David comes out behind him. He goes, oh, king. And, you know, of course, Saul's shocked and all the people are shocked. There's the guy we're looking at. And David goes, look here. I got a piece of your robe. I could have killed you anytime I want to. He said, I don't want to kill you. I don't want to take your throne. God set this whole thing up. I'm not after you. Why are you after me? I'm your servant. I've served you. I've served the army. I'll do whatever you tell me. I'm not trying to kill you. In this case, Saul then started crying, said, you're more righteous than me. And he took his guys and he left. And David didn't believe Saul would stay that way long, so he ran off too. My point is this. David prayed and said, God, we got these evil men who are, who are trying to kill me. I need your deliverance from this. And God did. God always protected David. You remember one time, it's funny, it's like a movie. The Bible says Saul was on this side of the mountain and David was going around the other side of the mountain. I mean, you read the thing and, and David would go over here and Saul would go over here. And then when Saul would go here, David, God would move David over here. God protected him through the whole thing because David trusted God and said, Lord, these evil men want to kill me. Now, uh, at the end here, let me share a couple more things with you and we'll close. He said, God, these guys are, are um, setting a trap for me. In verse 5, he said, the proud have hidden a snare for me uh, and cords, which were used to put in bushes to catch animals. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. And another pause, uh, Selah. Um, two things, and, and we're going to close. Evil and wickedness in the world today tries to trap us. And let me apply it to a Christian's life. If you go on, if you go on Google, or search engine, and I'll just say Google, and you type in there, fishing pole, you know, fishing rod and tackle. For the next six months, your phone will have fishing pole ads on it, and it'll have, it'll have, every time you turn on the computer, there'll be a big fish and a bass and lures and a boat, and there'll be, you know, truck advertisements. Don't you want a truck to pull your boat? I mean, there'll be, there'll be everything, on, and every piece of electronic thing you have will be an advertisement for a fishing pole or something to do with buying fish, okay? or catching fish. Now, that's a, that is a true thing that's irritating to start with, but the point is <clears throat> Google tracks what you look for and watch what it does. For merchandising purposes, it then targets you for the thing that you looked for, okay? Satan works the same way in the world. I want you to listen very carefully. 
If you're a born-again child of God, you're going to heaven. There ain't a thing in the world they can do about it. Why? Because Jesus saved you, and it was free, and you didn't earn it. And you say, well, boy, I really messed up after I've been saved. Well, hadn't we all? So just confess, and you're still a child of God, okay? Don't live in sin. Confess it and get out of it. The world does the same thing to us, though. Now listen carefully. Same kind of trap thing that David's talking about here. If I allow a sin in my life, an area of sin, and use the whole Google analogy thing, and I, and I metaphorically search that thing in my life, and I go out in that sin, and I allow it, I look at it, I hear it, I watch it, I participate in it, whatever the case may be, Satan, is, Satan and his whole demonic world system is taking notes. Like, ah, he, he's open he, he's open right here to this sin, or she's open to this sin right here, whatever that thing is. And man, you can stand by because every temptation that comes into your life right after that is going to be that thing. Every time you turn around, that thing's going to be in your face. Why? Because it's a trap. Because they go, man, you're, that guy, that gal is susceptible to that area of sin, and Satan is going to hammer you. He's going to come after you. That's why, that's why the Bible says put on the whole armor of God. Don't, don't have any weak spots. Don't allow any weak spots. Ask like David did, like we, last, we, we learned last week. God, go before me. Go behind me. Go all around me. Because if I go out there by myself, there ain't no telling what's going to happen. And so David said, Lord, they're trying to trap me, uh, and Satan will do the same thing to you and me. So he said, well, what should I do? Stay away from those areas where you're weak, for sure. Stay away from them. Whatever you got to do, cut that thing out of your life. I don't care how drastic it has to be. I don't care what it is. Uh, a preacher friend of mine was telling me one time that another guy came to him, and he was a preacher, and he said, a guy had confided in him and said, man, there's a woman in the church that I'm really attracted to. And the preacher said to him, you ought to leave church tomorrow. You ought to resign. He said, you ought to, you ought to do whatever drastically you have to do. You got to remove yourself from the situation. Man, that's strong, isn't it? God said, resign tomorrow. Go to the church and resign because it'll get you. It's a trap. Well, that's how it is in all life. Got to be careful. Let me show you one last thing, <clears throat> and we're going to close. David, and I don't, I don't, when we do this, I don't point it out all the time, but David is really an Old Testament type of Christ in a lot of ways. And I could, we could go through and point them out, but I'm going to point it out in one way today. David was an innocent man who was persecuted by evil men. Jesus was an innocent man who was persecuted by evil men. Okay? Now I'm going to, I want to read a passage with you. We're going to do a little running commentary and we're going to close. Look at John chapter 8, verse 34. Now this is Jesus talking to the religious leaders of his day. They had already declared themselves to be his enemy. Everything that we just talked about with regard to David, they tried to do to Jesus. You could just go through and, and make all the same connections. Okay? Now look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides in uh, forever. Now Jesus is drawing the line with them as he always did between their religiousness, then they weren't saved, and being a son of God, being saved, and being a true child of God, and their sin. He was always doing that, and that's what he's doing there. Now look at verse 36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now I have time, but the, the Jews were 
fond of saying we are slaves to nobody because we serve God. You know, and Jesus was, he never did it, but don't you know just Jesus wanted to go, yeah, well, those Roman soldiers walking around here has something to say about that. You are absolutely enslaved to somebody, okay? Jesus said to them, though, if you really want to be free, quit looking around here. The Son of Man can set you free, meaning I can save you and set you free from the sin that's got you trapped, okay? Verse 37. Now he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Now here it is. I know you're a descendant of Abraham. I know that you claim that descendancy from Abraham, but you want to kill me. You're wicked in your heart. You plan to kill me. You're already plotting together everything David said. You want to kill me because the things I tell you offend you. My word is not in you. God's word's not in you. It's not part of your life. That's exactly what was happening with David. That's exactly what happens to us today. We say what God said, and the world hates it. I mean, they hate it. And it just rubs them the wrong way. Okay? Verse 38, Jesus said, I speak what I have seen my father with my father, and you do what you've seen with your father. Boy, now he's really going to get them. He said, you got a father, and it ain't the one you think it is. Okay? Then they answered, verse 39, and said to him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if uh, you were Abraham's children, you would do uh, the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. There was Jesus just honest with him. If you were Abraham's children, you'd be in agreement with me. If you were Abraham's children, we'd be working together and you're not trying to kill me. Okay? Now, then they get personal. Isn't this, this is what the world does too. You can be talking about God and you can be talking about right and wrong. And when they figure out they can't, they can't fight God's word, then they'll attack you. Look at what they say in verse 41. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Now, you know what they're saying there, don't you? Okay, Mary was the virgin. We know that. But as far as they're concerned, she had an illicit affair and Jesus was born out of it. So they're saying you're the, you're the child of fornication and you're talking to us who were the pure descendants of Abraham. I love what Jesus did here. He didn't even respond to him. He, he didn't even respond to the personal attack. Notice what he said in verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Boy, that's a stinger, isn't it? If you really were the children of Abraham, you'd love me. For I proceed forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Let me ask you a question here, and we're going to close. Could Jesus be any clearer? I mean, often in the Bible, people go, oh, well, you know, Jesus wasn't really clear about who he was. Really? Really? I don't know if you can get any clearer than that, can you? I mean, he said right here, look at it again. He said to them, if God were your father, in verse 42, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, okay? Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my words. You can't hear what I'm saying because your heart's hard. You can't hear what I'm saying because you don't want to hear what I'm saying. The evil trying to trap the, the good man, same as David. Let's look at the rest of it we'll close. Verse 44. You of your father, the devil. Now Jesus just takes the gloves off. Yeah, your father's the devil. It ain't Abraham. Well, and I bet they were just loving that. Man, we were going to kill you five minutes ago. Now we're really going to kill you, okay? You are your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Now look at what he says about Satan. He's a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and is the father of it. Why well, strong? Verse 45, but because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Oh, man. Isn't that what the world does today? You tell them the truth, and they look at you like you're crazy. And you want to look at them and go, are you not hearing what I'm saying? 
Are you not listening? Verse 47. He who is of God hears God's words. Oh, that's strong. Therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. The world. The world don't like God. It ain't going to like you. So we can learn a lesson from David here. The world, the world has evil people in it. And evil people will eventually find their way into positions of influence where they can make laws and, do, and, and control life. And when they do, understand this, you're going to be the first group they come after. Because what you live and what you say doesn't line up with what they want to do. You say, oh, no, pastor, should we be afraid? Nope, be happy. Should I be happy? Oh, yeah. You know why? Because you got the truth, and they don't. And we need to have compassion on them, and we need to pray for them. And we need to pray for them. As the Bible says, pray for those who rule over us. I pray for the president every day. He makes me scratch my head, and he makes me, I, I don't understand. But listen, Jesus loves the man, and I love him, and I, I wish he would get saved. Hey, if he gets saved, he'd be a different man. Be a different man. Then maybe he'd ask Jesus what he ought to do. I'd pray with him if he'd let me come up there. But he won't. Listen, the world's that way. Evil people in the world, but be happy because you've overcome the world in Jesus Christ. And we went in the end, right? Listen, if you're here tonight and you've never been saved, can I invite you to come to Christ? I know people who are watching online are going to watch the video later. Would you pray to receive Jesus tonight? Would you ask him to forgive your sin and save you right now? Would you do that? Let's pray. God, thank you for teaching us from your word. Thank you, God, that David wrote these things. You had him write them, and therefore our edification and learning. God, I pray for that man or woman who needs Jesus tonight. I pray, God, they would confess their sin and ask for your forgiveness. God, may you bless us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're going to sing. If I can help you, you can come on the first verse, and I'll be glad to pray with you.